Hey, so let me, uh, let me give you a little more uh, follow-up on our outreach this morning. Like I said earlier, what we're going to do is just go to the park and hand out cold bottles of water. We've got about a few cases of water. We'll put them on ice. And this is a, a kind of a, uh, an approach to evangelism that was sort of popularized. I don't know if it was invented, but it was popularized by a vineyard pastor named Steve Shogren, who's a friend of ours years and years ago. Steve felt like uh, there's, you can just go up and talk to people about your faith and share your faith with them, and that was good. But really, Jesus is a servant, and his, his heart and his call was to serve people. So he said, what if we do something nice? What if we just kind of love people, serve them in some way? And so he kind of came up with this idea called servant evangelism, which is just a way to uh, share. We say we're sharing. In fact, I'll just show you. This is the, um, the tagline is we're just sharing God's love in a practical way. Um, but let me say this. Here's the thing. We'll go to the park, we'll eat lunch, we'll pray, we'll break into groups of two or three, uh, we'll grab some waters and just go out and, and offer people a bottle of water. Uh, what happens at that point usually is that there's, there's an opportunity to engage in conversation. People go, why are you doing this? What's, what, what's this all about? Why are, you, why are you just randomly in the park handing out water? And we can say, well, we're just here to share God's love in a practical way. And if they ask, a oh, that's interesting, who are you? We have these little cards made that just says, cup of cool water. It's got the reference from Matthew, God bless you, on the front, and then a little information about our church on the back. And you could just say, hey, here's a card. We're from a church just down the street here. So if, if that's all that happens, that's great. But here's the thing. Our heart is, we, we believe God will speak to us and, and he'll, he'll engage us with his spirit as we're engaging others in his name. And sometimes God will give you a little insight, a little something for somebody, a word of knowledge or some direction. And, and you might be able to engage them a little further by, by sharing that. And I, I, uh, I understand at this point that that takes a little boldness. You have to take a step of faith. And that's where there's a little bit of a risk factor. But let me just say this. You know, I've said to people, hey, uh, you know, is, there, is this or that happening in your life? I felt like the Lord showed me this. And somebody, no, that's not. Oh, okay. Just, you know, thought I'd ask. And you're fine. No big deal. It's not like they're going to go, you're a, you're a freak. Um, I also would encourage you to really prayerfully, uh, as you have opportunities to engage with people, even if you don't have a word of knowledge or anything from the Spirit, you can always ask people if they would like prayer. And so we have another little line that we like to use, and it's, can I pray for you right now? And here's the thing. Have you ever said, uh, I've had this experience multiple times where you ask somebody, hey, can I pray for you? And they say, sure. And they think that I'm going to go home and in my little prayer room, I'm going to pray for them. And then I start praying for them, and they're kind of freaked out. So I think you, you say, can I pray for you right now? It's an opportunity to pray for them in person. Now, again, we want to be, uh, we want to be gracious. We want to be sensitive. Um, I have no problem at all with you laying hands on somebody when you pray for them. But I would say, hey, would you mind if I put my hand on your shoulder while we pray? You know, just ask, be gracious. But I really believe if we pray and if we listen to the voice of the Spirit, that we will have opportunities in the, in the park today to really touch people's lives, both in a practical way with the cold water and in a spiritual way with, with the life and presence of Jesus. And so that's our, that's our plan. That's our hope. Like I said, take an hour. You know, how many people do you think you can talk to in the park in an hour? Uh, maybe one, maybe ten. You know, it's just so we'll just, we'll just go do this. It's a pretty nice day out. Not as hot as it was a couple of days ago. Amen. Um, 
But that's, that's sort of the deal there. Uh, so again, I, if you have the, the opportunity, even if you weren't planning, I really would welcome you to join us today. This is, this is really who we are at our core. Is, is we're a people that we, we want to be not about us, but about what God's doing in our community and our world and sharing his love in every way we can. And this is just one opportunity to kind of get out and do that. On that note, we have been uh, going through a series lately um, on sort of what Phil Stroud, our national director, calls essential practices of the Vineyard Movement, evangelism, discipleship, leadership, and diversity. And so I've been, I started talking uh, kind of in order there about evangelism. And I hope that if you haven't been here, you can go back and listen to the podcast. But I hope that I've been able to give us maybe a fresh perspective on what evangelism looks like in the life of a believer today. That it's not a program so much or, or something that, that we do, but it really comes out of who we are. And I want to continue with that today. Um, so here's, here's today's message, and I'm, I'm dating myself a little bit here, okay? I, I'm, I'll be, I'm old. I'm old. It's, there's no way around it. Um, but the title of today's message is The Gospel According to Bruce. Uh, that's Bruce Springsteen, for those of you that don't know. Uh, and I realize that, you know, he's not the latest and greatest, the, the newest and hippest. But back in the day, I think it was probably mid-80s, Bruce did an album called The River, and there was a song on there called Hungry Heart. And, uh, and I'll be honest, he doesn't really present the gospel in that song. That was just a clever title. You know, the gospel according to Matthew, gospel according to Mark, gospel according to Bruce, clever title. But what he does do is this. That song identifies, I think, the human condition with uh, a real profound accuracy. He really nails, I think, where people are in the world today. Uh, Let's just take a quick look at it. Uh, Bruce says, sings, I'm not going to sing today. I I thought about it. Um, Got a wife and kids in Baltimore, Jack. Went out for a ride. I never went back. Like a river that don't know where it's going, I took a wrong turn, I just keep going. Um, it's, a, it's really, anybody know the song? Familiar with it? Two of you, three of you, okay. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a deceiving song because it's kind of peppy, it is. It's sort of upbeat and kind of danceable, but it's, it's actually really, really sad. You know, you're like, but it's a sad, sad song. Guy's got a family and he just takes off and leaves them. He just takes off and ditches them. I'm gone. Goodbye. Why? He tells us in the chorus, because everybody's got a hungry heart. Everybody's got a hungry heart. Um, he's searching for something. And, and he says, not only is he searching, but everybody's searching. There is a hunger in the heart of humanity. There, there's a longing. There's a void. And we're looking for something. And he has his family here, but he doesn't, it's not being met. It's not, he's not finding what he's looking for. So he just gets in the car and drives away and takes off. It's a tragic thing. But there really is something. And I think if we're honest, we can all identify with it. And if we look around in culture, I think we see it. Uh, there, there's, there's a hunger, a longing, an emptiness in, in, in the hearts of people, and it's, it's, it's human nature, it, it's, it's, it's ingrained in us to try to fill that, to fill that emptiness, and to satisfy that hunger, and to kind of try to make life worth living, you know? Um, the second verse is even sadder. He leaves his family, he hooks up with somebody, I met her in a Kingstown bar, and then he says, we fell in love, I knew it had to end. It's, it, there, there's no good ending, there's no happy ending in this story. 
uh, took what we had and ripped it apart. Now here, here I am down in Kingstown again. He did what I think many people do today, and that is try, he tried to fill that longing with relationship. Anybody? Try to fill that longing with relationship. Uh, I, I, when, I, when I talk with uh, young people who are getting married, I often tell them this. Look, if you're incomplete as a person and you're thinking that getting married is going to complete you, you need to think again. If you're not a happy person and you think that getting married is going to make you happy, you need to think again. That the truth is, you know, that's not going to solve the problem. That's not going to make you who you think it's going to make you. All right? If, if you want to be happy in your marriage, you need to be happy before you go in, okay? Let's just, let's just put that on the table here. Relationship ultimately will not fill that hunger in our hearts. Um, people try to fill it with other things, not everybody. Some people, I think, go through relationship after relationship, and they realize that ain't working. So they try to fill it with money, make more money. If I make more money, I'll, I'll fill this hunger. And we've seen that story in the movies a hundred times. It doesn't fill it up. You know, you, you, you're, you're, that, that longing is still there. Some people try to fill it with power. If I, if I can gain power and I can gain authority over people and I can be in charge, then, then I'll feel f- fulfilled, I'll feel accomplished, and we realize that doesn't do it either. Uh, some people will just try to do it with pleasure. If I, if I can get enough worldly pleasures in my life, ultimately I'll be fulfilled. But the truth is this, and you've heard it said before, it's almost cliche, but there's a God-shaped void in the heart of a human being. And only God can fill that void. You can try to fill it with anything and everything else, and it'll never, ever be filled up. Um, I think at the end of the day, Bruce is right. <clears throat> we end up like a river that don't know where it's going, and we just keep going, or like it's flowing, and we just keep going. We just keep going, and we keep walking in the emptiness and longing that we felt all along. So <clears throat> we've been talking about evangelism, Right? Evangelism is sharing the good news. It's good news. The good news is this. The good news is that emptiness that is in the heart of every human being can be filled. It can be satisfied. The love of God, as it's revealed to us by Jesus Christ on the cross, is good news. The good news is (coughs) what will satisfy that hunger and that void in our heart. A hush fell over the room. There's, there's an emptiness that really can only be filled by the presence of God in our lives. That's the good news. Um, we're going to look at Acts chapter 17 today, uh, but before we get into the text, I want to pray, and then I want to give you a little, a little preface to uh, the text. So let's, uh, let's just pray and ask God to open our hearts. Father, would you allow us, uh, by your grace, to receive your word, that it would water uh, our souls and our hearts and our minds and cause new life to spring up inside of us? Would you cause your word to be rich in us, Lord Jesus? Would you cause your word to allow us to move forward in our relationship with you? Amen. So here's, here's before we get into the text, we're, we're called to be bearers of good news carriers of good news. Uh, We're not called to just be sayers of good news, right? 
There's one thing about proclaiming the good news, but there's another thing about actually carrying it with you when you go. Paul says in one of his epistles, and I apologize, I can't remember right now, uh, I think it's Corinthians, but we're supposed to be living epistles, right? It's a letter written on our hearts that we bring to people. We actually carry the good news inside of us. This is uh, the, the kind of the theological term there is incarnational. We're, 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 we're actually taking the presence of Jesus with us when we go. And so here's my point in sharing that is that the good news has to be good for us first. Okay? Um, my question to, to us this morning as a people is, is our hunger being satisfied? Are our hearts being filled with the love of God? A few weeks ago, um, Tuck asked me to come and share at youth group with our kids about Vineyard Values. And, uh, and it was, one, it was a blast. They're, they're pretty fun. Um, but I, my, my, I talked about Vineyard Values, and one of those values is experiencing God. That's, that's one of the core values in the Vineyard Movement is experiencing God. God isn't an idea or a thought. It's not uh, something that we just receive intellectually. We want to actually experience the presence of God in our lives. It's, it's, it's a value. It's important to us to actually be in a real living relationship with a living God. That happens in a number of ways. It happens through worship. It happens through prayer. It happens through the Word. But Here's the thing. It has to be there. It has to be real. It has to be authentic. And I wanted to say this today. I don't think, there, to me, there's no formula. There's no program. There's no book you read. However, it doesn't, there, there's no set way. This is how you experience God. Let me say, however you experience God, that's fine. Some people worship in their cars while they're driving. Some, some crazy people, like I said, get up early in the morning and pray with God. Uh, whatever works for you. However, I don't care how you connect with God as long as you connect with God. Whatever, whatever works for you, but it has to be genuine. If it's not real in us, it's not going to be real to anybody else. Does that make sense? You can't share something with somebody that you're not experiencing in your own life. I'll tell you this. As far as sharing our faith with people, people are smart. Okay? And if, and if you're just trying to sell somebody something, they're going to figure it out in about two seconds. Okay? If you're doing something out of obligation, if you're doing something out of guilt, if you're doing something out of duty, they're going to smell it a mile away. But if you're doing something out of the reality, the authenticity of what's happening in your own heart, I think people are attracted to that. In our first week in talking about evangelism, we, we said evangelism is really just talking about something you love. And when, you, when you're sharing out of your heart about something you love, I think that engages people and they want to hear more. It's totally different. If you're just trying to sell something, if, if you're doing it for, or, you know, just because it's the thing to do, I don't think you're going to get very far with that. But if it's real in us, it'll have meaning to, the, to others. So Acts chapter 17, uh, many of you are probably familiar with it. Paul is, we're going to look at the last part where he's in Athens. Uh, Paul was in Thessalonica. He was preaching the gospel and some of the local religious people there were threatened by that. So what they did, their strategy was they, 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 there were some thugs, some, some hoodlums, and they paid them, hey, go disrupt this guy. Beat him up and run him out of town. So they did that, and he left and went to Berea. Uh, and in Berea, uh, he, he had a similar situation happen, so he had to flee in the middle of the night. Uh, so he went one way. 
Timothy and Silas went another way. Now Paul is in Athens, and he's waiting for Timothy and Silas to join him. And as he's in Athens, he does something that, that I think is, is important, and we'll talk about it more in a minute, but he really just walks around the city. He's not saying anything or doing anything. He's just walking around the city, and he's looking and, and just kind of getting a feel for who are these people? What are they like? And you, you, can, you can figure that out just by walking around the city, can't you? Keep Portland weird. How many of you ever walk around Portland and just go, this is a weird place? All day, every day. I mean, I'm telling you, I, I drive around Portland. I see, I go only in Portland. There's a guy in a tutu on the corner, and you just wouldn't see that in Orange County. It's just, you know, I mean, it's just amazing here. Paul's walking around. He's walking around Athens. He's just looking. He's getting a feel for the, the city and the people. This is what it says in verse 16. While he was waiting for them, Timothy and Silas, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. As he's walking around, he realized the city is full of idols, and it, it, it disturbs him. He's not happy about it. Now, Athens is a capital city in Greece. Uh, it's a cultural center. So I don't even know what to compare it to today uh, in the U.S. Um, I don't even know. Boston, maybe? Art, literature, architecture, a lot of history, uh, educational center, all this stuff. It's also a place of, of education and intellect. There are four different philosophical systems that are thriving and prospering in Athens. There's uh, Platonic philosophy and Perpetetic philosophy, Epicurean philosophy, and Stoic philosophy. So all these different philosophers, it was common in Athens for them to gather together and just talk about their, their high, lofty thinking. So that's what's happening there. It's quite a place, quite a place. Um, and had been captured by Rome. And so at the time of Paul's visit, they are actually under Roman rule. But all the, the kind of historic culture and everything that's typical in that city is, is still present, still being carried on. So let's look a little further. Uh, Paul is, is, again, he's waiting for Timothy and Silas to show up. He's walking around. He's checking out the city. So here's what it says. Uh, Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus. That's where all these philosophers and people are meeting and talking. And he says, I see that in everywhere you're very religious. For as I walked around, I looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to claim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not very far away from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Um, let, me, let me just back up for a second and say this. Um, I believe it's a disservice to, to God, to the kingdom of God, and to people to attempt to share our faith without understanding culture first, um, without really understanding where people are and where they're coming from. I, I, this has been huge for me in Latin America. Latin American culture is different than North American culture. And I have found many people go down there and, and they are uh, a little put off by the culture. 
And I found that how I minister is greatly affected by culture and that, that it's, it's on me to adjust what I do to their culture. I don't think it's fair to begin to, to really speak into people's lives until you really understand who they are and what they're about and where they're coming from. So Paul's walking around the city and, and he sees these idols and it said, remember, he was greatly distressed. So he's not just going, oh, idols. Hmm, that's interesting. No, this is bothering him. It's, to, it's, a, it's a distressed him. How many of you have ever walked around just in, let's say, in Portland and been distressed by what you see? If you haven't, wake up. <laughs> Can I just say that? Uh, you know, I sometimes walk around and I just go, God have mercy. God have mercy. There's a dozen different situations on every street corner. Um, what do we do? What, what do we do when we see things in culture and in the world around us that distress us? I, to me, I, I've, there, there's a couple approaches I've seen in the church. Um, one is to immediately point out everything that's wrong. You're all going to hell because this. Okay? Immediately point out what's wrong. Uh, the other approach is kind of the extreme polar opposite, and that is just to, um, you know, hunker down. I'm going I'm to build a wall, and I'm going to make a nice little hermetically sealed Christian enclave where no bad things, no cooties, no bad juju can ever come in and get me. And I'm just going to be right in here, and if I never go out there, then I'll be safe. So we, we, we're, it's easy to say, you guys are screwing up. You're messing up. You got, look at their sin everywhere. It's also easy to just separate yourself out from that. In my estimation, uh, neither one of those is really the heart of God. Paul compliments these people. First thing he does is said, hey, I can see in every way you're very religious. You've got, you've got objects of worship all over town. He, he really does intend that as a compliment. Um, he doesn't point out what he sees as being wrong. What he does do is he looks for a point of contact. He looks for a little bit of common ground. Hey, I worship, you worship. Now, we worship different things, but, that, but that's common ground. He finds some common ground, and he reaches out to them. In our, um, our regional conference that we had here recently, uh, some friends of mine, Eric and Julia Pickerel, were here sharing, and they're a young couple who are originally from Columbus, Ohio, and they left Columbus and went to Amsterdam and planted a church in Amsterdam. And they were there for seven years, and then they've recently come back to Columbus. And Amsterdam is one of the most liberal cities in the world. It may be the most liberal city in the world. I don't know. It makes Portland look like a conservative bastion. I mean, it is, it is a liberal, liberal city. Prostitution is legal. And not only is prostitution legal, but it's advertised. Now, how many of you, you go to the mall and, you know, everybody has their, whatever's on sale right now or kind of whatever, there's, there's a window, right, in the mall in the storefront. And so, you know, REI has whatever the seasonal thing is there and Macy's has their seasonal clothing. Well, if you walk around the streets of Amsterdam, there, there are window fronts like that with prostitutes in them. And they're there in, in their prostitution gear just sort of so you can get a feel for, you know, what you're purchasing before you purchase it. Um... 
No, I'm not going to ever do that again. I can't believe I did it right now. So it would be really easy. It would be really easy for, for Eric and Julie to, to, one, just begin to point out, hey, that's, you shouldn't do that. That's wrong. Or it would be easy for them to say, hey, you know what? This is not what we planned. Now we're going to pack up our kids and go home. But instead, what they did is they started to pray and look for ways they could serve these young women. And they began to make contact with them and said, is there anything we can do to serve you? Can we bring you some water or something to drink? Can we, can we get lunch for you? And they began to actually build relationships with these gals. They sat down and had meals with them. They treated them as as people, first of all, and as equals, as not as though there's something wrong with them in any way. They began to build relationship with them, and guess what happened? Some of them accepted Christ in their lives, and they began to come to their church. And then guess what they did? Is they went back and talked to their friends. And so let me tell you that I, I think that if we are able to look past the sin that we see and see the hunger that is driving that sin, it will, it will greatly help us in the process of leading people to Christ. Do you know that no matter what behavior, what activity someone is involved in, there's a hunger in their heart that's behind that that they're trying to fill. Bruce was right. I also want to say this, and I, I think that... Um, When you do that, some people aren't going to like that. You begin to identify with people that are, that are in a different place in life, and the religious people are always going to speak up like they did with Paul and with Jesus. Compromiser. You're compromising your faith. Liberal. You've become a liberal. Um, they said that to Jesus. Oh, well, hangs out with prostitutes and sinners and drunks. How dare he? He should, be, he should be telling them what's wrong. He should be getting just telling them what's wrong, condemning them, not hanging out with them. And I think if you're going to really press into God's heart in evangelism, there's always going to be a little bit of pushback. Back in the 1950s, uh, Billy Graham was kind of young and emerging as an evangelist, and he wanted to reach young people. And at that time in the church, he was very conservative. You, you wore a suit. That's what you did. And, and you wore a conservative suit. Dark blue, navy blue, gray. That's it. Nothing else. Billy Graham wore a sport coat, and then he put a, he did, he went completely, he just, he wore argyle socks and loud ties. He didn't wear a, stri, a pinstripe tie. He started wearing these crazy paisley pin ties. Ties, and people were, what, how irreverent of him. How dare he do that? And you know what Billy Graham did? He went completely off the reservation. He, he, it was typical in a crusade or an evangelistic meeting to have music beforehand. But what kind of music do you have? You have a piano or an organ. That's it. That's all you do. Billy Graham goes out and hires a trombone player. Well, everyone knows the trombone is of the devil, right? Now, this is the 50s. In the 70s, guitars and drums were of the devil. But this is before guitars and drums were even of the devil. This is when trombones were of the devil. And believe it or not, as, as ridiculous as that sounds, he took a lot of heat for that. He really did. He really did. For, for wearing loud ties and playing a trombone. You know, so I'm just saying, when you, when you, when you, when you 
step outside the box a little bit, you're going to get some pushback. But here's my recommendation. It's not our place to judge. We don't judge other people. We don't judge the people we're ministering to. We don't judge how other people do their ministry. Our, our job is to extend the love of Jesus, extend the kingdom of God to those people that he calls us to do. Paul says, as I walked around the city, I looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So Paul says, hey, look, here's the deal. Let me talk to you about this one, okay? You guys have got idols everywhere. Let me, let's just, let's talk about that one for a minute. And he begins to talk to them about the gospel. He found a point of contact. He, he found an entry. He found a way into their lives is what he did. Look around, look around, listen, pray, ask God to give you a way into people's lives. Here's the thing. I'm going to give you the secret to evangelism this morning. We, talk, we, we always think of evangelism as proclamation. We're speaking something. Let me tell you this. It's every bit as much about listening as it is about speaking. It's every bit of, as much about listening. Listen, 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 listen. Our job is to listen to people. Why is it our job to listen to people? Let me tell you this. This is why. Because people are worth listening to. People are worth listening to. People, everybody has a story, and they want to share their story. And if you will take the time to listen to a person's story, I guarantee you will have an opportunity to enter into their story and to allow your story and God's story to enter into their life. But you've got to be willing to take the time and make the effort to listen to them and listen to them. This is a person, whoever it is, whatever their situation, no matter how dark and how deep they've dug a hole in their life, that Jesus died for. This person is worth Jesus dying for, and it's worth me listening to them to find out where they're at. Evangelism is a byproduct of loving people, not the other way around. Loving people is not a byproduct of evangelism, okay? Evangelism is a byproduct of loving people. Again, people are smart. If people are an agenda, they're going to know. If, if they're just an agenda, they're going to know that they're an agenda, and they're going to walk away. We talked about uh, just what you love, sharing what you love. Here's my last point today. I'm going to do it real quick so we can take some ministry. And that is that it's not loving not to share. Okay? If we just say, that's all good and well, but I'm going to go home and take a nap. And no, nothing wrong with taking a nap. But it's not loving not to share. If, if somebody's hungry and I'm full and I know how they can get full and I don't tell them how to get full, I'm not really loving them. If we have good news and we don't share that good news, we're doing a disservice to God's kingdom. Uh, here's, a, here's a story, I'll tell you, uh, of all places, 2 Kings chapter 7. Israel is at war with a country called Aram, 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 I don't know. And anyway, they're under siege, Israel's under siege, and so there's a famine, they're, the food sources are cut off. So there's a famine in the city and this war is raging, now, there's four lepers, and they're sitting outside the city because that's where lepers are, right? They can't come in. So these lepers are uh, talking amongst themselves, and th this is what they say. We don't know what to do because if we stay here, we're going to die. If we go into the city, we're going to die. So what do we do? So this is the conclusion they come to. Let's surrender. Let's turn ourselves in because if we turn ourselves in, they might let us live. They might kill us, but if they kill us, we're going to die anyway, but they might let us live. So they go into the camp of the Arameans, and they're going, they're, hands up, we surrender. We're coming in. And they get there, 
And the Lord had done an interesting thing. He made a sound like thunder, this loud noise, and the Arameans thought the Israelites were coming over the hill and going to attack them. So what did they do? They all ran away. They fled. So the four lepers show up to surrender. Hello? We give up. Hello? There's no one there. They start looking around camp. Well, the Arameans fled, but guess what they left behind? All the food, all the wine, all the gold. All the, they left everything behind. So what do, what do four lepers do? Party. They party. <laughs> We're not going to die today, brother. We got it all. Uh, and so they're having a party. They're having a great time. And then all of a sudden it hits them. I love this. It doesn't get any better than this. They said to each other, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and we're keeping it to ourselves. If we have good news, we need to let somebody know. It's not loving not to share. Why don't we stand?